Well, today we continue our series on lessons in Christian living from the book of James. We're also trying out technology this morning, so bear with us. We've had some difficulties, and each week we try to refine it just a little bit more. So our passage, uh, James 4, 11 through 17, is just seven verses in length, but like so much of James, there is gobs of content in this brief passage, content that should cause us all to stop and think through our thoughts and our actions. And I'll tell you, honestly, when I, when I got this passage, I said, you know, I wonder who, who I can give this to. <laughs> this one's tough. <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, the Lord sent it to me, so maybe I should struggle through it. The text covers three instances of prideful arrogance, speaking evil, judging others, and presumptuous living. Here's an outline. It's uh, pretty straightforward. The outline, but I want to spend a little extra time on the context and a background which will, I think, give us useful foundation for understanding the text under consideration. So let's read the text together. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and a judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet do you not know what tomorrow will bring? What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say... If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So let's begin our discussion by looking at the context for James 4, 7, 11 through 17. We noted several weeks ago that James can be viewed as a variety of characteristics that define the genuineness of a believer's faith. True believers are marked by, among other things, humility, God's wisdom, and a controlled tongue. Let's look at the highlights of what James says about each of these. It doesn't take very long, and he gets into the book, and he says, the brother in humble circumstance ought to take pride in his high position. And we were going, well, how does that work? And then the next point that was made right there is, well, we got to get God's wisdom. What is God's wisdom? Well, first of all, God is the source of that wisdom. And then later in the book, he describes what that wisdom looks like. And it obviously has big implications for relationships. Wisdom from above is meek, pure, peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. And throughout the book, we've heard all about the tongue, haven't we? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and become angry. Failure to control means religion is worthless. Did he feel strongly about it? I think so. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue can defame and judge. We see that in our, in our passage for this morning. So in last week's text, James lamented that worldliness results... In last week's text, James lamented that worldliness results in quarrels and fights, driven by self-centeredness and pride. And he concluded, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, because humility 
will restore and foster godly relationships. Think again about the context. What's he saying? You're quarreling. You're fighting. And the reason why is because you're arrogant. You think you know too much. You think you know better. You're better than they are. And so you're condemning them. So he concludes, humble yourselves. And that's where we ended last week. So then, we speak evil, and when we judge, it's about broken love with other people. Does that make sense? If you loved them right, you wouldn't do it. That's what he's saying. And if we're presumptuous in our living, that's about a broken love relationship with God. We don't understand who he is. We think we're superior. We got it under control. We know what we're doing, so this is what we're going to do. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. So let's look at love from a biblical perspective. James says, if you keep the royal law found in Scripture, what's the royal law according to James? The second most important commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. That's it. That's what you got to do. Love is the base of these relationships. You're going to get it right. You got to love right. The commands in Scripture are really an explanation is required by the law of love. Have you thought of it that way? So in Exodus 20, we have 10 commandments. What's that about? What are the first four about? Love the Lord your God. That's what they are. What's the last six about? And love your, love your neighbors as yourself. That's a summation right there. I hadn't really thought about the commandments being an expression of God's love, but that's what it is. That's what it is. There's the essence right there. Then you think of 1 Corinthians 13. What is that? It's a treatise on love, is it not? And Paul goes into details about this is genuine love. This is it. And then if you read the epistle of John, what's that all about? Oh, my goodness. Lots of love, isn't it? And, uh, and all how, how love relates and integrates in this. If you don't have, have love, you know, you're not part of God. If you really have love, then, then you have fellowship with God. And if you love, you're going to love your brothers. All those kind of concepts are woven in there in a, in a wonderful way. So you got to pause here and think for a moment. Let's compare that to... The, the world's definition of love. And this is Webster. Strong affection for another arising out of kinship and personal ties. Yeah, okay. Attraction based on sexual desire. Affection and tenderness felt by lovers. Yeah, yeah, okay. Affection based on admiration, benevolence, or common interests. I want to highlight the second one because awful lot of that around. Think of the popular hit, Shape of You, by Ed Sheeran. Did I say his name right? Tell how informed I am. <laughs> the repetitious, catchy lyrics saying, I'm in love with your body, illustrates a contemporarily worldly, self centered view of love, unfortunately held by many. Yes? Is that the right definition of love? Is that it? It is not. It is not. Worldly concepts of love will result in a legacy of corrupt and broken relationships. Do you see them all over? Absolutely. Love is not right. And so the relationship is busted. Now, take a look. In contrast, the biblical concept of love will build right relations with God and with others. Let's look more in detail at this concept of Christian love. The greatest commandment, according to Jesus, as recorded in Matthew, is first, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. The first four commandments, right? There it is. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. And James calls that the royal law. That's the last six commandments. And then a, a little bit of, of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is the core Christian attribute. Yes? 
Yeah, that's it. What, what does it say at the end of 1 Corinthians uh, 13? Be hope and love. And what's the greatest? It's love. It's love. It's love. You know, I think we sort of don't get that. We talk about love frivolously, but love is a central, a core truth, a core truth. It permeates the Bible from beginning to end. So what is this love? It's defined as patient, kind, not arrogant or humble, doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable, resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That is true, genuine love. What do you think? You got it right? I don't. I'm learning. I think I'm going to keep learning. And I don't get it right in my relationships. I go, oh, didn't get that right. I didn't do those very things that Paul says are core to this. Well, um, uh, I think, and, and as I thought about it, and I summarized this, and I looked at uh, a number of texts and so on, I think there are probably three core characteristics of Christian love that will easily separate us from, from uh, the world's love. The first is that Christian love is sacrificial. Think of the text, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What's the example? Jesus Christ laying down his life. So how should you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Willing to lay your life down. Well, that's huge, isn't it? That's huge. Is that what the world teaches? I don't think so. You know, if something's going to harm me, well, I'll step away from that. That's not for my better, right? Second, love is action-based. Little children, let not your love, not, not, not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth, says John. Well, that obviously parallels James and his, his words. What's he say? Faith without works is dead. If you really have genuine faith, you're going to be acting out that faith. That's what you're going to do. That's what love is. That's what love is. That's what genuine relationships are all about. And the third issue is that Christian love is about obedience. What does John say? By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments... If we love him, we keep his commandments. Now, is that an earthly or worldly view of love? I don't think so. I don't think so. Earthly love is about me first. And I'm not even sure what love is and what truth is or anything else. It's all very fuzzy, isn't it? But those are three central core views about what, what love is. If you kind of look at all this, what is it? They distinguish us. So with this context in mind... Let's then look more closely at our text for today. In last week's text, again, James stated that self-centered pride had caused fights and quarrels. The section ended with James saying, get over the strife causing pride. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now in today's passage, James points out three evils that come from self-centered pride and arrogance. Pride and arrogance is revealed by evil speaking and judging others. And pride and arrogance is revealed by presumptuous living, setting your plans without acknowledging the sovereignty of God. James says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. James is taking on the relationship-busting sin. One of the purposes of the church is found, found in Acts 2.42 is fellowship, a fellowship that encourages and nurtures growth, 
Speaking evil destroys relationships. Note the word brothers. It's a family matter. What's the definition of speaking evil? Slander is one of the terms sometimes used in exchange for that. The utterance of false charges or misrepresentations which defame and damage another's reputation. To defame, to damage the good reputation of a person. To put down, to express contempt for. What is the typical goal of a person who speaks evil? To put others down means to exalt self, right? You're taking a higher position. You're looking down and saying, nope, you don't have it right. You don't have it right. Oftentimes, it's about making yourself look good in relation to them. Not much is left if your reputation is destroyed. And that's, again, why James is so, this is so critical. If we take away your reputation, what's left? I have no reason to trust you, right? I can't believe you. So it's core. And that's why James is so, so um, um, excited about this. You got to get this right. So just how bad is the sin of evil speech? The Old Testament is filled with a discussion on the wickedness of slander and its devastating impact on every aspect of life. In fact, John MacArthur notes that more is said about this sin than any other in the Old Testament. I didn't go through and check them out. Solomon says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Three of those seven things deal with how we relate with other people. A lying tongue, a false witness, and one who sows discord. Sins that destroy personal friendships and relationships. Evil speech is a fundamental characteristic of the wicked. King David writes that such people, the tongue frames deceit, speak against your brother's slander and your mother's own son. Could have added a lot more verses there, but that's, he's talking there about the wickedness of mankind. And you look at Paul. You remember the passages in Romans and where he says, among other things, he says, they are gossips, slanderers, and haters of God. So is it a big deal? I think so. In God's economy, this is a very big deal. So you say, I didn't do it, I just thought it. Is that okay? But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. We learned that early in James. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? So if you're thinking of it, what's going to happen next if you don't get it taken care of? You're going to act it out. So watch it. Everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if you just thought, are you okay? I don't think so. Lord says you did it. You did it. And then remember, so maybe nobody else knows about it, but what's the last verse say? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So are you okay? Remember who God is. He knows exactly what you're thinking. And he's got it right. So if there's those kind of things going on, you can't have thoughts. No, you got to deal with those thoughts. All right, so we got to talk about another related issue, and that issue is gossip. You may not have defamed or represented the truth. You just shared the truth. Is it okay? Is it okay? But idle talk that tends to run down folks is called gossip. That did you know words? often with a negative slant. What's the National Enquirer all about? 
Unfortunately, a lot of, quote, news falls in that category. The reason Harry and Meghan gave up royal duties and moved to America? Gossip. Gossip. So look at, listen to Solomon's thoughts, and I love scripture, and that's why I just put so much of it in there, because I want you to hear what the, what the Word of God says. When words are many, sin is not absent, but who holds his tongue is wise. Other versions say, when words are many, sin is inevitable. The gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. What kind of friends do you want? He who covers over an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. This is from the wisest man who ever lived, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. Can you relate to that one? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. As we talk about it, what happens? We're building the fire. That's what we're doing, and we're destroying people in the process, often over trivial stuff. Yes, and so much in the church, we're not concerned about key doctrines of the faith. We're talking about the tangential stuff, and we're criticizing and defaming. Stop it. Stop it. Paul summarizes the degenerate mankind again. I've used it, but I use it again just to point out the word. Is it just defaming or evil words that are bad? Paul says, no, you got to include gossips too. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters. How important is it? Right in there with God-haters, gossip, evil words. Well, Paul summarizes the devastation of evil words. Paul summarizes the devastation of evil words and gossip quite succinctly in Galatians. The believers there were eating each other up with evil words and gossip. Paul points out what to do first, then describes the results of uncontrolled evil words. For you were called to freedom, brothers, not only to do, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity of flesh, but through love serve one another. Love, right in the middle of it. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by another. What's it say? If you're speaking evil and you're gossiping, well, what are they doing? Well, they're doing it. Pretty soon you're all. Nobody's left. All your reputations are ruined. And what happens to your testimony individually and publicly? It's a shambles. Where's Christ fit in this? Not good. Not a good situation. What does evil speech reveal? Jesus said to his disciples, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. For out of the mouth come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Evil speech and thoughts come from an evil heart. The heart is a wellspring of life. It is the heart that determines how we think and act, what we do, what we say, and where we go. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart of a man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. If your tongue is saying bad things, then your heart needs cleansing. Well, this issue really deserves a sermon itself, and actually a lot of things I've touched on we could develop all by themselves. But here's just a kind of a, a flow of thoughts to help you think your way through it. So much depends on what we're eating. There's good measure, good measure of truth in the idea that what you eat is what you become. What are you looking at? What are you listening to? Where do your feet, what, where are your feet taking you? What are you meditating on? Boy, it makes a difference in my life. If I saturate myself with the wrong stuff, boy, I tell you, my heart's not right. 
my thoughts aren't right, and they're not God-centered. They're centered on worldly, worldly things. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin again to you. What a great prescription. What are you doing? Get the heart right. Paul writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. How do you think your heart's going to be if that's where your heart is? I think it's going to be overflowing in joy. You're going to love the Lord, and you're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Believers, having been given, have been given an indwelling Holy Spirit to convict us of wickedness and help renew our minds, so that according to Romans 12, 2, we can discern what the will of God is and what is good, perfect, and acceptable. To get that right, we've got to have a right heart. To get our heart right, we need to be thinking and eating the right things. Our goal should be, as David prayed in Psalm 51.10, create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Now let's look at the second arrogant sin that that James condemns, and that's judging. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So what is judging? Judging takes evil words and gossip to the next level. Judging then decides if it's right or wrong. That is what it is to judge. Ultimately, as with the Pharisees, judging involved determining divine judgment and eternal destiny, damning a person to hell. And you've heard it probably in speech, right? So as a starting point, it's important to note that God is the judge of all things and all people. He judges not only outward appearance, but he judges the heart. Consider these two verses. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. It's great to have the judge also create the law, right? He knows the law inside and out, and he's just. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs his heart. So important. Well, that should lead to some questions. If we can't judge... Well, can government, employers, or parents judge? And what about the church? Can the church judge to keep out the wolves? And if we're to avoid judging, does that mean that we would ignore Christian sin in a fellow believer's life? Well, let's think our way through those things. The Bible teaches there's two ways to judge others. One way to judge is to judge a person's motives, and that's sinful. Who gets to judge motives? Only God. Only God can judge those correctly. When man does judge motives, he arrogantly usurps the sovereign authority of God. Only he can do that. The other way to judge is to judge a person's actions, and that can be right, but let's examine that. Judging by government, church, parents, and masters is appropriate. Well, why is that? Because these four authorities are established by God. If you look at scripture, you see that. Government over its citizens, pretty clear text, very clear text. Church over believers, yes, yes. Parents over children, go back to the Ten Commandments, honor 
your father and mother, right? What does honor mean? Masters over their employers, I think that's teachers over pupils, all there, okay? So they have a God-given responsibility and a right to judge. That's what scripture teaches. Okay, so there's a caveat. If judged for preaching the gospel, assembling together to worship, not supporting abortion, then we have to stand with Peter, who told the Jewish religious leaders that we must obey God rather than man. We rightfully judge when we discern character or teaching. We live in times when tolerance, unity, and love, which usually means being nice, are dominant themes in the evangelical churches. If you dare to expose sin, if you label someone's teaching as unbiblical, or a person as a false teacher, you get accused of being judgmental and unloving. But the Bible is clear that church leaders would be extremely unloving to allow wolves to prey on the flock or to allow a sinning believer to infect the flock without confronting and exposing him. Paul tells Titus that after, that after warning a divisive person twice, to have nothing more to do with them. What's that require? It requires judgment. That's what it requires. You're comparing to the word of God. You're saying, don't meet that standard. That's judging. The New Testament has many examples of church leader a judgment on ungodly behavior or false teaching. Notice that the judgment is about actions and not about motives, and no judgment is rendered with regard to eternal destiny. If you see your brother or sister in Christ about to ruin his life by sin or by believing false doctrine, love should motivate you to do everything possible to warn him. Would you allow him to go over the cliff because you won't judge? I think not. We rightfully judge uh, to speak to another about sin or false teaching. James' viewpoint, so we often quote the part that said, don't judge, but look at what he says further down there in 5, 519. He commends those who go out. He says, my brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What did that person do? They judged based on the word of God, based on their actions, based on what they said, that they were wrong. That's what they did. And because they loved him, because they loved him, they went to that brother or sister and said, I'm concerned. Based on what I see, action is required. Paul agrees there is responsibility for Christians when he writes to the warring Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Some key terms here. So as we go through this, don't say, oh, I have the right to judge. Think of all the things that go with it. With gentleness, lest you keep watch over yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When you confront a believer on a sin issue, follow the guidance of Matthew 18. More, another sermon right there, right? Begin in private unless it's a public sin. Then take a second person with you. Then refer to the church for final action. A pure heart is vital before any confrontation occurs. And we'll talk about that momentarily. First and foremost is genuine love for the Lord. Their spiritual purity and genuine love for the other person. It's not about self, right? If there's any self in there, it isn't right. And we'll talk more about that. We rightfully judge when we evaluate spiritual maturity and doctrinal views. Judging a person's character and doctrinal views are important in making wise ministry decisions. 
Keep in mind the proper motivation, love for the church and for the individual. The elders judged four candidates for baptism, and we were delighted that they met the standard, and we were delighted to baptize them. There's some judgment required there. We sat around and said, what do you think? And we said, yes, we've heard their testimony. And based on their testimony, their words and their actions, we said, yes, baptism makes sense. When we commend someone for missionary service, we're evaluating them. Do they measure up? Ministry team leaders, recommendations for education, all those things involve judgments. Are they right? Yes. If it's about them, if it's about love for them, if it's about maintaining our love for the Lord and the purity of the faith, then those judgments are right. Notice again all three cases where judging is appropriate. The judgment is based on observations of actions and words and not motives or judgment about the person's eternal destiny. So we wrongfully judge when we criticize out of envy, jealousy, self-ambition rather than build up. You know, I just think you're too successful. And I have a problem with that. Is that a good basis for judging? Absolutely not. Don't do it. We assume we know all the motives. Who judges motives? We judge actions and words, what we see. We don't judge the heart. The only person who judges the heart is the ultimate judge, God himself. When we set up human standards, personal convictions, rather than holding God's word as a standard, I feel strongly about how physically fit I should be, and you should be too. No, no, don't go there. Where'd you find that in the Bible? Well, there's the temple. Yes, there is. And also think about it as we go through it. Then you've also got um, the issue of hypocrisy. We'll see that in a moment. Think of what we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. What, were the, what was the controversy? Vegetarian believers judging who ate meat in Romans 14. Lots of these issues in there. And you see Paul addressing some of those conflicts and saying, hey, guys, get back to what the truth of God's word is. That's so important. If you don't first judge yourself, Matthew, where, he, where Jesus is talking about some of this judging and most often quoted don't judge verse, he also says first, he says, before you say anything, folks, get the log out of your own eye before you're picking on the speck in somebody else's. And oftentimes I think that'll stop us. Just think about it. Before you go out and you even think about that, you got your own ducks in order? Generally, that puts us right back in our place. Can't do that. Need to get things squared away. And then criticizing over minor matters. You know, and, 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 and we're, I think, unfortunately, there's an awful lot of that goes on. I like the saying, on essentials, unity. On non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Makes so much sense, doesn't it? Yeah, when you, when you have problems with Jesus as God, I have to speak up. I have to speak up. That's a fundamental of the faith. And we're going to have to have some words about that. But there's so many things where there's freedom. Where there's those freedoms, then we are wrong to establish a standard and say, you must abide by this. Then we've set up our own laws and standards intervene. And finally, judging someone's eternal destiny is God and God's alone. So moving ahead, we read, but if you judge the law, then you're a doer of the law, 
you are, you are not a doer of the law, but of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So how is judging somehow judging the law? Well, think about it this way. What's the summation of law is to love others as yourself. When you inappropriately judge someone, you are not following the commandment to love as you should, right? You're, you also arrogantly saying to God, I refuse to love you as you have commanded me. I usurp your authority. Mm. Well, you may not have said it orally, but that's really what's going on, isn't it? Yeah. That is God's place alone to do that. Only the wise, just, omniscient God, the creator of the law, can judge motives and eternal destiny. Be humble and give God his proper, superior, sovereign place. So make your speech excellent. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. So think about that as you talk to one another. Am I building up or am I cutting down? As it fits the occasion that you may give grace to those who hear. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God has forgiven you. So yes, there are times maybe judging is appropriate, but also love may require that, but love also requires you to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. It puts us in our place again, doesn't it? How much did Jesus do for you? What are you doing for this brother or sister? Are you picking on them? Or should you be saying, okay, okay, I got plenty of warts myself. Be careful what you pick. So mark of a genuine believer is speech that demonstrates a clean heart and evidences the royal law to love your neighbor yourself. I think our prayer should be, as the psalmist said, to set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And then it's important, too, to remember to respond to correct judging. If someone comes to you and their motives are right and they love you, then how will you respond? In arrogant pride, will you say, hey, don't go there? Or will you be humble and accept those words? I think that's an important piece, too. We're often not there, and that, too, is a mark of arrogance, is it not? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Listen carefully. Okay, moving on to presumptuous living. Boy, we're, we're, so much more could be said. Uh, but let's, let's read the text again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will, will bring. What is your life? For you, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him... It is sin. So what is God honoring planning? Well, I think it's important to understand that wise planning is not condemned. What does Jesus say? He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down, count the cost, whether it has enough to complete it? So he's not saying don't plan. That's not the point. But planning that leaves out God is arrogant and presumptuous. For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What's it, what's it mean? There's language in Peter, and you're going to find it throughout the uh, Bible. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, 
and the flower falls. The point is to emphasize the transitory and very indefinite life that we live. And we need to recognize it. That's that humility again, right? Who am I? I'm all puffed up. I got this figured out. No, no. Understand who you are. Understand who you are, especially in context with who God is. And where do you fit in? So what's God honoring planning? Don't be assertive, arrogant about things you don't know or can't control. And if you stop and think about it, that's exactly what it is. Do you know if you're going to make it home today? Do you know when your next emergency will occur? And the answer, we don't know any of that. So how dare you say, I'm going to go do this or that. Now, I remember my mom and dad, I think Lev remembers it too, could, and we'd often, they'd say, as the Lord wills. So what do you keep saying that for? Because it's the right attitude, folks. That's what James teaches. It's an acknowledgement of who we are in our humanity and who God is in his sovereignty. Submit to the omniscient, sovereign God. It's not what we want, but what God wants or permits, an attitude modeled by Christ. Think about that. Not as I will, but as you will. That's Jesus Christ, the creator, saying that to his heavenly father. That's what he modeled. And what are we saying? Thank you, I'll do it. That's done. I don't think so. A mark of genuine faith is a life that is lived in submission to God. So lots to say and so much more could be said. And here's some summary thoughts. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Continue to develop your love. It's not something we're going to master instantly. It's a lifelong thing. Fulfill the royal law. Humbly love one another. Practice excellence, encouraging speech. Know, know when to judge correctly, but don't ever forget the humble attitude and personal preparation. Remember again, it may be loving to judge, but remember also that love forgives as Christ has forgiven you. Be careful. Avoid arrogance. Humbly include God in all your plans. Let genuine love govern your relationships with others and with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we want to love, and yet so often our sin nature gets in the way, and we say things that aren't right. We act like we're somebody. And our Father, I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that you will help us to get love right, our love towards you, our love towards each other. Bless our relationships and fellowships. And we realize that all that is only possible as we surrender our lives to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.